16, verse 11. We're at a very exciting part of the book of Revelation. The great tribulation is over in our study, which is, uh, it's a relief. It's a time that we are glad to see this period of judgment over. We're glad that it happened, that God in his truth and justice judged sin and sinners in a Christ-rejecting world. Judgment will still come in a couple different times throughout the book, but the tribulation period is uh, coming to an end in this uh, section that we are in. Last week, we had just a sweet celebration when we looked in chapter 19 at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And once we got to the marriage supper of the Lamb, the rapidly changing prophetic picture kind of has been hurrying us on, as Ironside says. And the time, too, does not stay. Like, we're kind of almost just in a, in a rush now going through the book of Revelation as there's just a lot happening. And so we would ask, what could possibly follow the marriage supper of the Lamb? You know, I love to read books. I love specifically to read military history, military uh, books, uh, true accounts. And, uh, and I love it when a movie comes out that was based on that book. It's so great. And I love to impress people when I'm watching that movie by saying what's going to happen beforehand, that I know what's going on. How do I know? Because I've read the book, all right? And as we look ahead to future, to what's going to happen in this world, to God's kingdom being set up, we can have that same type of uh, futuristic outlook because we have the book and we've read the book. And so as we get to this chapter 19, verse 11, we have the second coming of Jesus. And we know what that will look like as we've read the book. We have in verse 11, the beginning of the return of the king, where the main idea is that when Jesus returns, he will do so in power and in glory as he executes judgment on all who have rejected him, on all who have opposed him, there is going to be judgment to those who have said no to Jesus. Mounts writes, any view of God which eliminates judgment and his hatred of sin in the interest of an emasculated doctrine of sentimental affection, finds no support in the strong and virile realism of the apocalypse. You won't read the book of Revelation and skirt around the judgment of God against sin. Walverd, who wrote the book on interpretation, actually it's called Basic Bible Interpretation, it's a great tool, writes, all of these passages point to the sad conclusion that in the day of judgment, it is too late for men to expect the mercy of God. There is nothing more inflexible than divine judgment where grace has been spurned. 
The scene of awful judgment which comes from this background is in flat contradiction of the modern point of view that God is dominated entirely by his attribute of love. Now, God is love. That is one of his attributes. He is love. He is loving. He has shown love. He has poured out love. He has pursued with love. But that is not his only attribute. He is also a God of justice, a God of holiness, a God of purity. He's a God of wrath against sin. And so we dare not slip into the modern uh, view of um, God is love and love wins. Therefore, God is not just in his judgment towards sin. Calvary Chapel pastor David Guzik says, it's good for us to remember that this dramatic display of judgment comes only at the long time of extended grace, patience, and mercy. What we read of in the book of Revelation, specifically the second coming and this aspect of God's judgment here, is no rush to judgment. Jesus has amply displayed his nature of mercy and forgiveness, and grace to this fallen world. But now he comes to judge a world that is hardened and totally given over in rebellion against him. And so here in verse 11, we begin to see Jesus the King returning in glory and in power. And in verses 11 through 13, we see that that return is glorious. This Jesus Christ, the greatest and most influential man in world history, is known by his incarnation. That he is God who became flesh and dwelt among us. He's known by such historical moments in his life like his baptism where we see the Trinity, God the Father speaking about God the Son who has God the Holy Spirit rest upon him and anoint him. As he is driven out by the Spirit to his temptation where he proved to be sinless and combat sin with the word of God. We know his perfect and sinless life of obedience and love and servitude towards other that comes to a conclusion by his own friends betraying him and him being crucified on a Roman implement of execution. Three days later, though, he rose from the dead in glory, just like he said he would, where he then lived on the earth and walked on the earth for 40 days and showed himself to be alive with many infallible proofs to show that he had risen from the dead. From that point on, he rose up and ascended into heaven from the Mount of Olives, where two angels told the bystanders, why are you staring up into heaven? He's going to come back in the same way that he went up. And so these great eight points of Jesus's life find this second coming being number eight. The second coming has some key terms in theology. It's been called the parousia, which means the presence, the coming, and the arrival of Jesus. It's been called the apocalypse or the revelation. 
You know, the book of Revelation isn't about all the wacky and crazy demonic stuff that the devil and the Antichrist do. It's the revelation of Jesus coming back in glory to rule and reign. And so the apocalypse, the revelation or the unveiling of Jesus happens here in chapter 19. This moment in history is called an epiphany. An epiphany. I remember someone saying once, uh, do you, I just had an epiphany. And someone said to him, oh, did it hurt? You know, and uh, we're going to see this epiphany is going to hurt a little bit uh, to some folks. It means a manifestation or an appearing of someone. We know from the scripture and from our text today that the second coming will be personal. It'll be a personal appearing of Jesus. It's historical. It's the world event in history that Christians have been waiting for for thousands of years. It will be visible. The whole world will see. It will be physical. Feet will be touching down. It will be victorious. It will be cosmic. Heavens will be involved. If you were to chart out the differences between Jesus' first coming onto the earth and his second coming onto the earth, you'd find some distinctions. In the first coming, he rode a donkey. In the second coming, I can appreciate this, he rides a horse. Rides a stallion, rides a steed, a white one at that. In his first coming, he came as a suffering servant, but he will come as the king and a lord. He came in humility and meekness in the first, but in the second, he will come in majesty and power. He come to suffer the wrath of God towards sin in the first, but in the second, he will come to establish the kingdom for the Father and all of his saints. He was rejected by many as the Messiah in his first coming, but he will be recognized as the Lord in the second. In the first coming, he came to seek and to save the lost, but he will come to judge in the second and to rule as king. He came as God incognito in his first coming, but he will come as God in all his splendor. In the first, he came to establish peace between God and man, but now he comes to judge and make war. He was abandoned by his followers, but now he comes with his followers, following him. His eyes were full of tears, weeping for Jerusalem in the first, but in the second, his eyes are a flame of fire. In the first, he came wearing a mock crown of thorns. But today we see him wearing many diadems, many crowns. In the first, he was dripping with his own blood. But here he's dripping with the blood of the judged nations. And finally, he came to bear the wrath of God at the cross, but now he comes to tread the winepress of the wrath of God at Armageddon. Those were some distinctions between his first coming and his second coming, but there's some distinctions between the rapture of the church and the second coming as well. With the rapture, we see that it's the church that is caught up to the clouds to meet him in the air. Whereas with the second coming in Revelation 19, Jesus comes down with his church to the earth. 
The rapture is a secret snatching away of believers. It'll happen in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. But in Revelation, we see that his second coming is a visible coming that is an extended period of time and leads into a thousand-year reign on earth. The rapture brings comfort and joy to the church, but the second coming is a time of mourning and tremendous judgment. Graham Goldsworthy says that Christ does not return to do some new or different work. His return in glory will be to consummate the finished work of his life, his death, and his resurrection. At his coming, he will be revealed in all of his glory to all principalities and powers, both on the earth and in the heavens. That which the believer now grasps by faith will be open to every eye. You know, although the lamb will always be the lamb, here he comes as a lion. He comes to destroy all hostile and opposing powers with his mighty sword. We look forward to this day. We say, just as John says at the end of the book, even so, come Lord Jesus, come soon. He will have complete and total victory over all the powers of evil. And so in verse 11, we dig into it today, where John the Revelator says, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Throughout the scriptures, we see different times. It's rare, but we see times when heaven is open and God reveals himself to men. God might pour out blessing through those heaven, uh, open heaven windows. Like in Malachi chapter 3, when he says, test me in this one thing to see if you're generous to me, that I won't be generous back and open the windows of heaven and pour out such blessing that you wouldn't be able to contain it. Or Stephen, the first martyr, looking up during his martyrdom and seeing heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He got a glimpse into heaven. Peter, having heaven open and seeing a vision of a great sheet coming down where God was beginning to open the door of faith to the Gentiles. In our own text of Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, we see after the church age, John looked and he saw a door standing open in heaven and a voice that said, come up here. It's my belief that that's a picture of the rapture of the church, a door standing open in heaven and a voice saying, come up and be in the throne room of God. And so a first heaven opens up in Revelation, and John goes in. And now heaven opens up as Jesus comes out. Out on a white horse, radiant, white, and bright, symbolizing victory and purity. In Revelation chapter 6, we see another ruler riding a white horse. He's one of the first horsemen of the apocalypse. But the crown that he is wearing is a temporary crown. It's a Stephanos. He's been granted a little bit of power for a little bit of time, and he looks so much like Christ because he's the Antichrist. He's attempting to come in the place of Christ. Well, we see him done away with in this chapter as the true Christ comes on a white horse 
not with a bow without arrows, but with the sword of his mouth. And just so there's no mistake, the white horse in our text doesn't have the lone ranger on top, as if he's riding on silver, nor is it Gandalf from Lord of the Rings whiting the white horse into battle in return of the king. It's Jesus, the king of the universe, coming back to the earth in glory in his second coming. The second coming of Christ is a major theme in scripture. It's mentioned over 1,800 times in the Old Testament alone and over 300 times in the New Testament. It's referred to in 27 Old Testament books and 23 New Testament books. In the New Testament, one out of every 25 verses is referring to the second coming. For every prophecy of the first coming of Christ, there are eight prophecies of the second coming. When Christ returns, the saints will be glorified, creation will be liberated, and the devil will be defeated, and Jesus will be given the throne of his father David. The book of Romans chapter 8 says that all creation is groaning and longing. And the Greek language says that creation is craning its neck and looking for the day when Jesus will return. All of creation, plants and animal life, as well as humans, long for the day of the parousia, the apocalypse. It's no wonder Charles Spurgeon said the sound of his approach should be as music to our hearts. And this one on the white horse has some people with him. It says, he who sat on him, or rather I I hopped uh, ahead a little bit because they're also called faithful. Going back just a little bit, he who sits on this white horse is called faithful and true. The one riding this steed is dependable, reliable, trustworthy, truthful, real, and genuine, He's what you would call the real deal. Ironside says how the heart thrills and the pulses pound as we read this description of the descending Christ with his saints. Revelation chapter 3 verse 14. It calls Jesus the amen and the faithful and true witness. He's always faithful. He's always true. He's always righteous in whatever he does including when he makes war. Our text says there that in righteousness, he judges and makes war. We've seen this multiple times throughout the book of Revelation because Jesus is judging throughout the book. And so regularly we come back to these statements that as he judges, he does it in righteousness and he does it in truth. He's innocent As he judges. That is something we have to remember when discussing the judgment of God. And as he goes and makes war in Revelation 19, we remember that in his judgment, he is righteous. The interesting thing is, when you do your Bible study work, you look up this word righteousness. It's the only place in the New Testament where this version of righteousness is used. And it speaks of charity. In charity, not just right, oh, he's right when he does this, or he's innocent when he does this, but in his judgment in Revelation chapter 19, he comes in charity 
as he judges, in love, even as he judges the Antichrist and the false prophet and the people who are coming to the battle of Armageddon to fight against Jerusalem and against Jesus himself, he comes even with charity and justice in this form of righteousness. That kind of plays into why are there going to be people left after the battle of Armageddon to inhabit the millennial reign of Christ with Jesus as king. How did these people get through the battle of Armageddon? Because even in his justice, he's charitable. We're going to see that in the next couple weeks. He's the king who always makes war in the fashion of righteousness. Not every nation can say that. In fact, in every war, there are probably things behind the scenes that are selfish and selfishly ambitious and carnal and wicked and have not been brought before the great counselor. In every war, there are generals who do not meet out the demands of the president or the king in righteousness. And yet in the way that our God and king does warfare, he does it in charity with religious observance and justice is what the language speaks of. Psalm 45, three through seven says, gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one with your glory and your majesty. And in your majesty ride prosperly, prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness, and your right hand shall teach you awesome things. This is a messianic prophecy of Jesus, and that is how he comes on his white horse with his sword girded upon his thigh. He's riding in truth and and humility and righteousness. It goes on in Psalm 43. Five, your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. And it's a crazy Trinitarian statement there that God is calling Jesus the Messiah God. Okay, book of Hebrews uses this as a proof that Jesus is God and God the Father calls God the Son God. Okay, it's a bit of a mystery if you're new to the Trinity. But The throne of God, Jesus, is forever and ever. We're going to read about his scepter later on in Revelation 19, that it is a scepter of righteousness, and it is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness, and you hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed... Did you catch that? It's God calling the Messiah God. Okay? Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Spurgeon said, Jesus is the only king who always wars in the fashion of justice, righteousness, humility. There have been brilliant exceptions to the general rule, but war is usually as deceitful as it is bloody. And the words of diplomats are a mass of lies. It seems impossible that men should deliberate about peace and war without straightaway forgetting the meaning of words and the bonds of honesty. War still seems to be a piece of business in which truth would be out of place. It is a matter so accursed that falsehood is there most at home and righteousness quits the plain. But as for our king, it is in righteousness that he doth judge and make war. Christ's kingdom needs no deception. The plainest speech and the clearest truth, these are the weapons of our warfare. 
And God declares that about God as he goes to battle with the scepter, the scepter of righteousness and the scepter of his kingdom. And this is this this is what happens. This is what is happening right now in Revelation chapter 19. Psalm 45, 3 through 7, is being lived out in Jesus in Revelation 19. Verse 12, we see that his eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He has a name written that no one knew except himself. This isn't the first time that we see Jesus with the eyes like flame of fire. We see it in chapter 1. We see it in his letter to the churches. We see it referenced again and again that he is the one with the eyes piercing and penetrating with judgment and insight. It speaks of his omniscience, that he is all-knowing. Daniel had a picture of the Ancient of Days, Jesus. And when he sees him, Daniel writes in 10.6 that his eyes were like torches of fire. He also has these crowns. Many crowns. Crowns that symbolize authority. It's a reminder to us that Jesus is coming as the king and the ultimate authority and ruler over the earth. Chuck Swindoll notes that the image of this multi-crowned king Jesus inspired Matthew Bridges' 1852 writing of the majestic hymn that God's people love to sing, Crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake my soul and sing of him who died for thee and hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. We sing it more modernly. The one who wore the crown of thorns now wears the many royal diadems. Or rather, the head that once was crowned with thorns is crowned with glory now. The first coming, he wore the crown of thorns. And now he's anointed with many royal diadems. An incredible revelation of him here is that he has a name written that no one knew except himself. In the Bible, the name of Jesus speaks of his reputation. Okay? It speaks of his category, his authority, his cause. There's nothing better than a, a good name. And Jesus has a good name, but there's something interesting about it. And what is the deal with these names in the book of Revelation that nobody knows except the one who has it? Like, hey, what's that? I'll never tell, <laughs> you know? What is up with that? Well, Lad says that he has a secret name means that the human mind cannot grasp the depths of his being, of his reputation, of his authority. All eternity will grow in our knowledge and wonder of this great redeemer. As we spend time with him, we will begin to see what his name is. There were names written. Vance Havner puts it, the early believers were not looking for something to happen, but were looking for someone to come. Looking for the train to arrive is one thing, but looking for someone we love to come on that train is another matter. And so as Jesus comes, he's coming on that train, right? He's coming in the clouds. He's coming on the white horse. And for believers, even more than what is happening is more who is happening, 
who is coming. Verse 13, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood or sprinkled in blood or stained in blood. And his name is called the word of God. Isaiah 63 verses 1 through 4. Every book I read referenced it. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? I have tread in the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments And I have stained all my robes, for the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. And so this had a partial fulfillment in the uh, judgments of the nations Isaiah was predicting towards, but it also has its complete fulfillment in the true and better one trampling out the winepress. Revelation chapter 14, 19 through 20 gives us that description telling us that ultimate fulfillment is in Jesus. The angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city and the blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles, about four and a half feet, for 1,600 furlongs. Happens to be the length of Israel. Don't forget, though, as Jesus is clothed in a white robe, sprinkled with blood or dipped in blood, Jesus in history was also covered in his own blood. And he also bears a care for the blood of martyred saints. So while the first read seems to be a fulfillment of Revelation 14 and the trampling out of the wrath of God in the winepress, it also may be a reminder of his blood that was shed and that he also bears the care for the martyred saints. Moving on in this description in the second coming, his name is called the word of God. So he had a name written that no one knew. And then just to help us out a little bit, there's a name that we do know. Okay. His name is called the word of God. Logos Theos. Speaking of a word, a message reasoning, and actually even the gospel. His name is the gospel. He is the gospel. He is the good news. He is the word of God. John the Revelator wrote this, but he also wrote in his gospel, John chapter 1, verse 1, where he tells us that the word of God is God. This is another Trinitarian statement showing the deity of Jesus. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. Okay. And the word was with God. Okay. And the word was God. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So this is the mystery of the Trinity. Three in one. One God in three persons, God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy spirit. 
The scriptures attest to it. Jesus died for it and because of it, claiming to be God. The church fathers in the credos affirmed it. The word of God declares it written out by the apostles. In the beginning was this gospel message, this good news. It was with God. It was God. He was in the beginning with God. Okay, we're still in John chapter 1, verse 2. The word is now personified in a special way, calling it he. He was in the beginning with God, because he was God. All things were made through him, so the word is creator. And without him, nothing was made that was made. And it brings us back to one of the first statements of God is, Let us create man in our image. Who are you talking to? Got a mouse in your pocket, God? No, but the Son is right here, and the Holy Spirit is right here. We're three in one, all right? We have relationships since before the foundation of the world. John chapter 17, Jesus is talking about as he talks to the Father. And he says, I remember the fellowship that I've had with you since before the world began. And I want the disciples to have that same fellowship with us. All right. It goes on to say that in Jesus, John 1, 4, in Jesus, this is who it's talking about, was life. He's the word. He was life. He was creator. He brought life. And the life was the light of men. Then in the same chapter, by the way, uh, the whole book of John is about Jesus being God. Okay, so just in case you're like, that's just one. The whole thing, the whole book, the arguments, it's all about John telling the world that Jesus is God. Okay, and the very back of the conclusion says, these things were written that you might know that he is the son of God. And the Jews wanted to kill him because they knew that meant he was making himself God. And that by believing that, you may have life in his name. What happens if you don't believe that? The opposite is true. So John the Revelator, who's seeing Jesus coming in glory, seeing Jesus on the white horse with a name written that says the word of God, he knows exactly what that means. Because through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit, he wrote the gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and he wrote chapter 1, verse 14, that says, and the word became flesh. So the word was in the beginning. It was with God, it was God, it created, it's the light of men. What happened? The hypostatic union happened. In theology, it's called when God became flesh and dwelt among us. When the Holy Spirit, the Gospel of Luke said, placed the Son in the womb of Mary. Okay? God became flesh, draped himself in flesh, He writes Psalm chapter 40, he says, Sacrifice and offering you don't want anymore, Father, but a body you've prepared for me. I delight to do your will. Behold, in the volume of the book, it is written of me. And it's like this statement that is said by the Son as he shot into the womb of Mary. Psalm chapter 40. Hebrews chapter 10 speaks of it. Okay? And so, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And John says... We beheld his glory. Something that John is famous for in his epistles is, I'm an eyewitness of this stuff. I've seen it with my own eyes. 
And I beheld the glory of the word who created the world, who became flesh. I beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so as we see Jesus on the white horse with a name that no one knows, and then a name that we know if we read the Bible, declaring him to be God, Ironside says, here we have eternity of being. That Jesus is one substance with the Father, but distinct in personality. True deity and eternal sonship. Verse 14. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. So we see in verse 14 that his army is a holy army. Interesting, it's armies, the armies in heaven. It's plural. There are troops, there are soldiers, there's an expedition. There's a company of soldiers for God. This army is made up of those that are clothed in fine linen, white and clean. It's just a few verses back in chapter 19, verse 7, that we see the bride, the lamb's wife, Wearing just such garments. So who is it following him on white horses, wearing garments clean and bright? It's the bride, the lamb's wife, the church. The church who just got done with this amazing celebration of unity with Jesus being consummated. And now they're coming back to be a part of his kingdom with him you guys oh this ought to make your heart jump this is it right here guys this is it this is what we're longing for we've been with jesus we're dressed in robes of right righteousness we're with jesus who says i have such amazing things for you that the sweetness of our friendship and relationship it can only be likened to the picture of a husband and his wife and the intimacy and the relationship that's there like it's going to be so fantastic now let's ride. You know, they get on the horses and they go, you're going to hear me. You're going to hear me on that day. He's back there, guys. About 200 horses back. He's being awful loud and rambunctious. You know, it's kind of for all of us here. We're all in this together. Okay. Just excited about it. Making some hooting and hollering at the second coming of Jesus. Clothed in white, clean linen. Not armed with swords and machine guns and bazookas and Apache helicopters. Like, the people riding with Jesus have got nothing. Except, like, some bed sheets. I mean, the word, I'm thinking, like, linen. When do I use that word? We have a linen's closet. My favorite store at the mall is linens and things, I'm sure. Same as you. (laughs) If I could pick what I want to wear for all eternity, it certainly is linen. Thank you, Lord, for giving me that heart, because that is what I will be wearing. Clean and bright, maybe with a mustard stain on it, but, you know, it's it's from the marriage supper right there. They followed him on white horses. Revelation 17 says at the end of the verse, those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. Psalm 68, 17 says that the chariots of God are 20,000s, even thousands of thousands. The Lord is among them as in Sinai in the holy place. Interesting, we do see scriptures that have to do with 
saints coming back with Jesus, like Jude 1.14. He's quoting Enoch, but he says, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. It's a prophecy of the second coming. So get ready. Take some riding lessons, you guys. You're going to need them. Nothing worse than falling off your horse at the second coming, <laughs> being trampled by 10,000 other horses. Like, at least practice getting up on another horse as it rides by you. But not only that, the armies show that there's also angels coming back with Jesus. That plurality, the thousands of thousands and thousands of chariots, as Psalm says. Second Thessalonians 1.7 says, that Jesus is revealed, it's at the end of the verse, is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Speaking of the second coming. So, saints and angels riding, coming back with Jesus in triumph. But only as spectators, not as fellow soldiers. He again will win the day for those who love and trust him. In verses 15 and 16, we see that his authority is unparalleled. In verse 15, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. What is he, some kind of a buccaneer or something, and he just rides with the, you know, uh, you got to have both hands free when you're riding, you know. Uh, What is with this, this sharp, double-edged sword in Revelation 1.16, the description of Jesus, where we saw that he had eyes like a flame of fire. We also see that halfway through verse 16, out of his mouth went a sharp, two-edged sword. In Revelation 2.12 he writes to the letter uh, to the church in Pergamos and says, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. It's pointing people who would know back to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 4. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And so in the second coming, when he comes to judge the nations, he's going to strike the earth with the sword of his mouth, with the rod of his mouth. And Isaiah kind of helps with the description by helping us know that. And with the breath of his lips, he shall slay the wicked. So what is this rod of his mouth? What is this double-edged sword coming out of his mouth? It's his words. Okay? It's with the breath of his mouth. Hebrews 4.12 helps us understand that. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces even to the division of the soul and the spirit and of joints and of marrow. And the word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. 2 Thessalonians 2.8 says that when the Antichrist, the lawless one, will be revealed... The Lord will consume him with the breath of his mouth and will destroy him with the brightness of his coming. So what is happening in the second coming? Man, we've got Jesus is all decked out, many diadems, crowns, lots of authority. You know, he's clothed in white. He's on this white steed. You know, he's, he's got the names. He's got the word of God. It's clear who he is. And he is coming with words that are going to uh, just wipe out the competition. In fact, he has no equal and no competition in this battle that's coming up. Jesus possesses full divine authority and absolute power over things. Our text goes on to say that he himself, this is in Revelation, uh, right after speaking of the sword of his mouth, 
he is going to rule them with a rod of iron. Speaking of him being the shepherd, he is going to guide and act and protect as a shepherd. This right away takes us to Psalm chapter 2. Verses 8 and 9, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. It's a messianic psalm about Jesus coming to rule and reign on the earth. He will have the nations as his inheritance and he will rule them. And the wicked ones he will crush with that rod of iron. In Revelation 12, when we saw this prophecy of Jesus being born and Satan, the dragon, trying to consume him, it says that uh, the woman, which is Israel, bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. We studied that a number of weeks ago, but we do see that the child that was born out of Israel... Uh, It was going to rule the nations with the rod of iron. We know that that's Jesus. And we see that fulfillment beginning in the second coming. The iron rod of unswerving justice. Now, as we talk about the nations raging from Psalm 2 and the kings plotting vain things and the son receiving this rod of iron that he will judge the nations. In fact, at the end of the Psalm chapter 2, it says, kiss the son lest he be angry with you. When he comes back, man, he ain't playing, all right? He's coming to rule the world. And I thought this was helpful as I read it this morning by uh, Seiss, S-E-I-S-S, Dr. Seiss. Wrote some kids' books. Maybe you're familiar with them. No. He wrote, it does not mean the leavening of existing governments with Christian principles. The spiritual conversion of countries and empires leaving them in existence and simply Christianizing them so as to exhibit something of Christ's spirit in the administrations. But the rod of iron speaks of a total displacement of all this world's sovereigns and governments, the taking of all dominion and authority out of their hands and putting it in the hands of Christ. As the true and only king of the world. That should be helpful for us in this day and age. We love America, the red, white, and blue. All right? We pray for our president. We love democracy. We love capitalism. And yet, we would be amiss to believe that when Jesus comes back, the red, white, and blue flag is still going to be waving over uh, the White House, and Jesus is going to kind of bow the knee to us, we the people of the United States of America, who are the kings of our country, and say... Well done. You know, you kind of get a half of my scepter or something. No, Jesus is going to be the king of the world. All of the nations will be a theocracy. And Jesus will rule and reign in his form of government. It helps us in our perspective of all the different governments in the world. And that none of them compare to the one that he will rule and reign from with a rod of iron. It says that he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. He tramples, he conquers, he treads. That image from chapter 14 of a winepress and the grapes being squashed in God's anger and wrath and indignation, his fury, his intense desire and passion. 
as he is omnipotent, the text says. I mean, there is no soft serving peddling around this watering down that God's wrath burns hot against sin. He himself will take care of it. And you see that in various you know, documentaries and in various novels or reading that, that when, a, when a ruler is serious about something, he doesn't make someone else do it. He says, let me take care of this. I myself will do it. And when I do it, I'm doing it in fierceness. I'm doing it in words that the Bible uses. I'm not trying to just be harsh. I'm just using biblical words of where we're at. Fierceness. Wrath. Yeah, but in his wrath, he's just kind of like this about it. (laughs) No, almighty God. You seeing it? Almighty God is doing this. He's trodden the wine press alone, remembering Isaiah 63. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. So he's wearing this robe, kind of cool if you're into robes. Or a vesture if you're in the King James Version today. He's wearing a cloak. He's wearing an outer garment. He's wearing a coat. And it says, Basilius Basilion. King of Kings, Kyrios Kyrion, Lord of Lords. He's the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. King of Kings and Lord of Lords, glory. Close. (laughs) I was trying to be John Corson there for a minute, if you've ever heard him. He sometimes gets the congregation all riled up. King of Kings and Lord of Lords, glory, alleluia. Or the other verse from Messiah from last week. King of Kings, and it's repeated, and Lord of Lords, alleluia, alleluia. It's an alleluia statement that comes from this. He's the King of Kings, and he's the Lord of Lords. Earth would not recognize his claims to be king when he was here the first time. They held him in derision and they crowned him with a crown of thorns and gave him a cross instead of a throne. But God is going to reverse all of this soon. He's going to be exalted and extolled and be lifted up very high. We're going to have the worship team come on up. And next week we're going to look at verses 17 through 21 where King Jesus will judge all who reject him. But David Jeremiah is right when he says, we sing all hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. We are proclaiming his coming again. And we say from this text and from hearts that are spurred on from this text, what John the Revelator says at the end of the book, even so, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Will you set your things aside with me this morning?